You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Yeshua Poko of Beth Israel, but there in Coach St. Luke's favorite synagogue. Um, and it's Thanksgiving Day here in the United States. Canada, you guys had Thanksgiving um, a little bit earlier. We have a holiday every year uh, called Thanksgiving in October. It's a day when Canadians gather together to give thanks for being so close to the United States of America. <laughs> That's right. You guys you guys had it first. I think Canada Day comes before July 4th, too, Canada right? Is it July, July 1st? 1st? Yes. That's right. You guys are always there earlier. Um, it is. I, I, and start, let's start with Canada a little bit. Sent his condolences uh, to the family of Arye Shep Shapochek, who was killed terribly uh, in the uh, in the bomb explosion yesterday. And I believe it was in Givat Shol, or in, uh, where the uh, where he was waiting for a bus to go to yeshiva. Um, a terrible, terrible event, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, a Trudeau sent his his condolences because the the Shekapokak seemed to be a Canadian citizen, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, and he was the, I think, the was he the only victim? I, I yes. believe. Yes. Yes, although there are some people still critically uh, uh, injured in the hospital, uh, he's the only fatality. Right, and of course there were two bombings, as we pointed out, one in uh, close enough to each other, both in the western part of the city, and uh, listen. Rabbi, from what I understand, is that uh, firstly, the one in, in uh, where poor Arye was killed. Uh, that yeah, I don't use words like miraculous, maybe you know, but but it could have been much worse. The uh, bomb was planted near a, a gas canister that did not explode, which uh, which thankfully uh, you know probably spared lives, and in the remote situation. From what I understand from an Israeli I spoke to just about an hour ago, is that within minutes before the bomb went off, there was a much larger crowd at the bus station, and three buses had just left the bus station with hundreds of young girls, particularly on the way to school from remote. And, and again, so maybe uh, you know, so thank God it, it could have been could have been much worse. But the reality is that since last November till now, uh, twenty six Israelis have been killed in a spate of, of, of violence, which, by the way, also explains in some, in some extent that the election results, uh, you know, people feel the violence is, uh, is rising and uh, a stronger hand is needed. Also, it was announced today that a couple of weeks ago, a, uh, a, a, somebody from Gaza who has a work permit in Israel right. was arrested planning to plant a bomb on an Israeli bus. Uh, this morning in Beersheva, there was a car ramming of a teenager uh, by by a terrorist who was thankfully arrested 100 meters away. So again, uh, Israelis are, are are living with nothing like it was in the Intifada, but certainly uh, you know a, a frightening uptick in violence. Yeah, I think from what I read this morning in Haaretz uh, from some of the Israeli security forces or the police heads of the police divisions that this this these two bombings were more sophisticated uh they what it wasn't just a like a, a a lone person who you know started attacking this was actually uh detonated 
uh, with a sort of by a cell phone. Right. It's um, a remote control. It wasn't a suicide bombing. It was a remote right. control device, right. and which demands still... a certain amount of sophistication. Yeah. They also said, even though you said it was much worse, according to uh, the Israeli uh, reporters on the scene in Yerushalayim, yesterday was madness in Yerushalayim. That traffic is always a difficult thing during right. the rush. I'm saying the whole day was disrupted. They said if if part of what the terrorists' plan was to reach into the heart of Yerushalayim and especially the areas built yes. out away from the old city and to bring things to a standstill, they succeeded in that. Um, it indeed was a, a terribly disruptive thing. I, obviously, the, the loss of life and, and the wounding is, is, is terrible. It has to be condemned, and I, I hope it is rightfully condemned in all quarters. But it was successful in, in, in once again showing that they can reach into Israeli life and really shut it down. Uh, and it, uh, no, but, but the reality is, if you look back, I mean, we all remember the days of the of the Intifada when there were bombings regularly. It was Moment Cafe, Moment Cafe, Subaru bombing, Dolphinarium, uh, the Park Hotel in Atani on Pesach. Those those horrible, horrific months. And uh, two things uh, put an end to that. Number one, Operation Defensive Shield, when the Israelis finally re-entered uh, the territories to retake control. Uh, the security barrier and all of that. But what also uh, determined the result of all of that was the resilience and the determination of Israelis to continue normal life and not to be frightened and and, and not to allow the terrorists to uh, to rip apart civil society. You know, parents still walk every morning to the bus stop and, and put their kids on a bus. You know, Israel kept going. And uh, that kind of resilience, that kind of courage, uh, that kind of determination is ultimately what wins because the terrorists, as you say, want, want, want to disrupt and, and even more than disrupt, they want to break the spirit and uh, and that they'll never accomplish. Yes, but it does seem, and again, of course, I have not uh, done a survey from all quarters, but clearly there was a lot of uh, a sense of dread and, right. and, 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 and worry that Israel had not seen for a while. Uh, Netanyahu takes office, I guess, again soon, and this is going to be paramount. Uh, as you say, the election results brought him back in. Um, do you see a uh, severe crackdown occurring? Do you see things? Uh, uh, Listen, the problem is that it's not just one problem. It's, uh, you know, the rumors are, but nobody knows for sure, that the bus bombings were uh, committed by uh, bus stop bombings, I should say were committed by two Arabs who are citizens of uh, uh, of Israel who live in Jerusalem. Uh, I, I, we don't know if that's true yet. The police, interestingly, and it wasn't really highly noted, uh, got a gag order on the media not to report on the investigation. So that means something's happening in the investigation that they don't want to, you know, uh, signal to, to the other side. Um, and then on the other hand, you had these this new group in centered in the Northern West Bank called Lion's Den, that uh, Israel cracked down on enormously in Janine the last uh, few few weeks, even months, uh, that was perpetrating some some of the stabbings that that we that we that we saw. Then also you have people from Gaza, so it's not one issue. It's not like oh, there's a gang of people. No, it's lone wolf, it's Hamas, it's Lion's Den, 
it's 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 activists uh in terrorists and other organizations it's it's this is a complicated problem I, 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 and i i'm sure that the, the the thorny aspect of it is understood clearly by the israel security forces what i marvel at and you mentioned the indictment of uh, of that uh, that arab that was planning the bus bombing is how israel was able to discover that how they they must have uh microphones planted they must have spies they must have a, a very incredible system of ferreting out who are the perpetrators and who's behind it i know the arabs might say that it's all arbitrary but but i somehow believe and i'm sure you do as well that that the shin bet or the security forces they know what's going on and it's how they, they listen there is a enormous amount of time, money, resources, and brilliance behind how what Israel does to secure uh, the citizens of the state, uh, and and they have informers, they have technology, and 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 they 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 they're very good about all this stuff. How, one of the problems since the withdrawal from Gaza has been is the diminishment of human assets available to Israel to garner intelligence, particularly about Gaza. Um, but again, Israel still has its ways. But um, and you can see what goes on in Iran that their, you know, that their reach is quite large, is is quite you know, extensive. You know, they they, they seem to have better knowledge about what's going on in Tehran than they know what's going on in Meishar. And uh, so it, it is. You know, the Israel's security services are are absolutely remarkable. You can, you can be confident that for every incident that we hear about. Uh, that uh, that causes uh, damage, injury, and loss of life. God forbid. There's another hundred that were stopped. I mean, you, you can assume that easily. Like they have drones, they have ways of of being able to to sort of secure through uh, so many different high tech means uh, their information. And uh, Baruch Hashem, the, that's one of the reasons why I think, just like in almost every society the military security aspect is where all that tech, all that advancement occurs. That's what happened in the U S um, right. as a byproduct of world war two, the whole computer revolution that took hold in the seventies and eighties was really spawned by what was necessary to win world war two. And I think the same thing is always true. I mean, the internet um, started as a defense department project. Yeah, right. So that's what I'm saying. So it, it, and, and, and when we talk about Israel being incredible and high tech, they have to be. It wasn't just a way for entre- entrepreneurship right. uh, to be out there. They needed that high tech in order, as you say, uh, to protect and secure its citizens. Um, I mean, you have to wonder if you're a Palestinian and novelist or Janine. And... Uh, you see Arab country after Arab country uh, initiate diplomatic relations with Israel. How does that make you feel? That your brothers, your co-religious, the people who were your putative allies are now embracing the state that you loathe. How abandoned does that make you feel? And uh, I'm sure for some, it's a wake-up call. In other words, you know, maybe reconciliation is a better path and violence, but for others, it creates a profound sense of betrayal and alienation. Well, and especially if you were able to uh, hurl that into a, a bomb where you can be 25 miles away. 
you know, again, you don't what even. The interesting need is what is it? Sacrifice is that here we are, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a few years already into the Abraham Accords, uh, and you haven't heard much at all about. Uh, dissent in those countries against relations with Israel. You hear it in Jordan. Jordan, you hear it a lot because Jordan is 60% Palestinian. You know, you hear it in Jordan, but you don't hear it in the Gulf countries, which is interesting, uh, which means the, it does seem that the leadership of these countries, which form, which, which form relations with Israel, in, in many ways represent their people because you don't hear that, that that animus uh, against Israel, like you used to, and you don't have, you know, spasms of of, of protest against what the government has done. You don't see that anywhere, yeah. um, which is interesting. And uh, unfortunately, you know, I, I think that the Palestinian people continue to do to be betrayed by their leadership. And uh, I'm sure most of the Palestinians would consider a different path, but the leadership is tied to this rejectionism that would much rather see their own people suffer if it means the Jews will not live in peace. And uh, if given a choice between living in a world with a Palestinian state and a Jewish state, they don't want it. If having a Palestinian state means acknowledging Israel, they won't do it. They just won't do it. Yeah. Uh, You know, from a sociological standpoint, I'm sure people would say, as we get farther away from uh, the Nakba, as they call it, the, uh, uh, the forced... Uh, driving it, dri- driving out of the Arab uh, citizens from their uh, from their lands, which is now seventy five years ago. I think you know the real politic takes over, and I think that's part of the reason why, in- instead of uh, scraping up old wounds, uh, you have uh, they might be uh, fervent Muslims, but they are realists, and that could be one of the reasons why. Okay, look, it, it's a reality. Israel is here. Well, again, you know, I would just want to be careful. We shouldn't, you know, the 600,000 Palestinians who were displaced in the War of Independence were not forced out of the land. Some were in, in, in some instances, but overwhelmingly they were they left at the behest of their leader who told the leaders who told them to get out of the way so they could kill the Jews. Yeah, so. again, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't engaging in. Oh, I, okay. I understand. Religious. What I'm saying is that from the their far, perspective, yes. What I'm saying is the farther you get away from it, the farther, the farther, uh, the new generation is not going to be tethered. Oh, look what they did to my great grandfather. Um, it might be true, but right now it's different. A similar, I think a dynamic occurred we saw those voices when the original invasion of Ukraine happened, uh, where uh, there were some, well, look what the, you know, the Ukrainians did, the butchers uh, who helped the Nazis. The, those voices were stilled by others. Yours, by the way, was one of them that said, let's look at today what the Ukrainians are. And I think a similar dynamic could have taken hold by many of these Arab countries about Israel. Instead of rehashing once again whatever forty eight was about, right, let's, right. Let's, right. Look, let's look at the Israelis today. Otherwise, you can't. Look, Angela Merkel would not be able to uh, forge uh, treaties in, in Europe because, well, look what happened. Look what Germany did. Yeah, but again, I think we run the risk of assuming things about people with very different culture than, than our own. What I mean by that is, the, if you think Jews have a long memory, Arabs have even a longer memory. 
You know, 100%. And also, they see time differently. You know, they look around the Middle East and they'll say, yeah, listen, there may be a Jewish state now, but look at the demographics, look at this, look at the power, look whatever. Eventually, you know, 100 years, 200 years, you know, they'll be gone again like the Christian Crusaders, you know? That's what, that's the kind of stuff they believe. But look, they might be balancing. You, you, you raised a point, and I'm just trying to respond from a sociological right. perspective. Your point was that countries like the Gulf states, that in 67 were right. all gung-ho uh, to back, to back uh, Nasser and, and Egypt, and, and let's go gung-ho and destroy Israel. Now, 60 years later almost, they aren't that way. And I think that's part of what happens in all nations. Right. Like that, that's what occurs. And if and it happens right. with the Palestinians, fantastic news. Right. right. But again, it's uh, also you're talking about a culture that is very much an honor-based society. And it's hard for us to understand how deep the humiliation felt by many Arabs uh, in the face of the ascendancy of Israel. The victories in the wars uh, that took place, the land wars that took place. No, no question about it. And, and, and you can find that in the invective that is, uh, you can see from the West Bank and uh, the Gaza television stations, all the things they say uh, all feed off of that. And they keep on indoctrinating, as you say, uh, the new generation with that. Uh, let's talk about the other non-event, or maybe it was something significant that happened since the last time we spoke, which was Trump's announcement uh, that he is going to save America and bring it back to its glorious past. And and, and he also appeared, I think, uh, via video at the Republican Jewish Convention, held for some reason in Las Vegas. I'm not sure exactly why those Jews needed to go there. I mean, they're there to talk about... Apparently, the hotel accommodations in the Catskills aren't as good. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know again i uh, all i can tell is that uh, you know uh yeah okay we're here to talk about republicans and judaism and and candidates and meanwhile we're going to go catch you know uh the magic show and maybe gamble away something at you know at, uh, at the tropicana so I, I i don't really get it but okay it happens in vegas what what happens in vegas doesn't stay in vegas they all people Listen, came the, and, here's the thing here's the question here's one question trump benefited enormously from good fortune in 2016 when he won first of all he ran against the most hated woman in america okay that was okay hillary lost that election as much as trump won it number two he had the enormous good fortune of facing a large number i think there were 16 candidates at one point in the republican primary yeah. 17 and and facing a divided field, you know, even though his supporters were a, a minority, they were a plurality. And, 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 you know, he divided the opposition. He also benefited from the fact that everyone assumed his candidacy would collapse because uh, of the stuff from the past. And therefore, they didn't bother attacking him early, strangling the candidacy in its crib, because they all thought it'd be over. And they didn't want to alienate the people who were attracted to Trump by criticizing Trump. So he had he had several advantages in 2016, which are uh, two of which will not be replicated. He's not going to run against Hillary again, and uh, he uh, um, and, and he will be taken seriously. He won't be dismissed, and therefore he won't be uh, protected from attacks early on. But the other thing, the, the question, the open question is: Will there be a divided field of Republicans? 
the more Republican candidates there are in the primaries, the land based the, the Jews over there again for not supporting him enough in 2020, not realizing that he's the one who loved Israel the most. And instead of trying to appeal for their support, you know, Trump decided to give them like a like 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 a tongue lashing and a mooster schmooze. Now he's given that speech a hundred times already. Now here's what I don't understand. Yes, I understand some Jews finding offense at that. I personally don't find it all that offensive. Okay, yeah. I, I think it's kind of funny, you know. And and on and some of the critique, I think you and I would agree with that Jews don't always vote in their best interests. Okay, that's all he's trying to say, and um, and. Uh, the question is, when you hear that statement from a guy in Shul decrying Jewish voting par- patterns in, in, in the U.S., it's one thing to hear from a Gentile, who a former president, lecturing Jews on their their their, their, their foolishness and in, in who they vote for. That's a little off-putting. I understand that, but um, but um, and also, no, I say it's, it's, but, not, but I'll tell you what's funny to watch is liberal Jews claiming that speech is anti-Semitic. I don't see it's anti-Semitic. You can call it offensive. You can call it a lot of things. But I don't understand how calling Jews out for what he sees as their uh, as their terrible voting patterns. Listen, uh, you know, when a Republican, you know, appeals to African-Americans and say you've all vote Democratic and it hasn't done anything for you, nobody calls that a racist thing. That's not racist. You can call it wrong. But it's not racist. I, I think what was interesting and, you know, how he attacked the Jewish voting base was, what's wrong with you people? Don't you support Israel? And don't right. you realize that that I was the greatest president that Israel ever had as a as a friend? And, uh, and, and, and therefore, by voting for Biden or voting against me, don't you realize that you were threatening Israel? This is really what, what, what he means. Um, and, and, and I, I guess that is definitely an oversimplification of why people would vote. And it also implies that that what a Jew in, is, in America has to be is, you know, Israel first. And we got to vote for the candidate who, who, who makes the, bet, the greater overtures towards the state. Um, Listen, there's no question, however, though, there's no question that one of the great pillars of Israel's defense requirements is being allied with an America that is respected and has clout in the international community. That doesn't just help us with vetoes of the UN, it helps us across the board. And when the America that Israel is allied with is respected and its president is respected in Europe and in Asia, that is of enormous advantage to the state of Israel. So. You can make the argument that although Trump did enormously wonderful things for Israel, right, whether it was the, the Golan, whether it was the, the, you know, the recognition of Jerusalem uh, and the Abraham Accords uh, and everything else, there's no question it came with a price. And it came with a price in international influence in terms of having a president that wasn't taken seriously by many in the world. And it also paid a price, and, I, and, and let's be blunt here, it paid a price in American domestic support for Israel because Israel benefits when support for Israel is a bipartisan uh, cause, where it's not a wedge issue. And Trump's close association with Israel made it in the minds of too many as a wedge issue between Democrats and Republicans. 
and therefore led to a further distancing on the part of the Democrats away from Israel. You can make that argument. The counter argument is, don't be an idiot, Rabbi. Don't be an idiot. Uh, The Democrats were lost anyway, so who cares? That's the more cynical and more pessimistic approach, and certainly it has some some legitimacy. Um, So I I, I think Trump needs to stop um, uh, with the greatness of his building of the Israeli, of the embassy in Jerusalem and recognize Jerusalem. Because as you've said on this program, and many people know, uh, the the fact that you know the State Department kept on advising president after president not to move to Yerushalayim doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't going to send a lot of money and a lot of support. This was mostly a symbolic uh, action. Uh, and even though it made people feel good, I, I think giving it such crucial substance as you see what I did, I moved to, I moved it to Yerushalayim. Nobody would ever do that except me. Okay, yeah, look. Uh, we, we, listen, we, we, I, I, I don't listen. I think it's valuable, but but here's the other thing. I think to me the most the, the most startling result of that it wasn't I wasn't startled, but hopefully the world was is that all of the predictions, all of the predictions of every State Department were revealed to be so ill-founded that everyone said, you know, when America recognizes Jerusalem, there'll be an explosion on the Arab street, and that is nobody cared. Mm-hmm. There was nothing. The other thing is, by the way, I just saw watch the clip. It's so interesting to watch John Kerry when he was Secretary of State under Barack Obama, emphatically, repeatedly, specifically said that Israel will never have peace with Arab countries unless the Palestinian issue is resolved. Right. And and the and the world has proven otherwise. The world right. has proven otherwise. Yeah. And and again, no matter how often these geniuses are proven wrong, their credibility in the minds of too many remains intact. And and especially, I guess, trace this thread. You can really trace it back to Roosevelt's advisors, who also, um, you know, were, and definitely by Truman, that they were all worried about what would happen in the Arab world uh, with recognizing Israel first. I mean, the State Department has always been full of, I I don't know if you would call it Arab file, Arab overfiles, or Islamophiles. I don't know what you would call it, but I think what they're always worried about the great natural asset of oil that was there and the importance of not angering, uh, you know, the, the Muslim world. And, and, and that, that, those words of, of caution that were probably laced with, uh, you know, disregard for what Jews were about and maybe a hatred of Jews as well, because they, you know, they were sort of kept out of the state department for so many years. So I think that's really the tradition uh, that is that is extended even to today, and uh, and that's probably what's going on. So I, I agree with you that they've all all of those whisperings have been proven have been proven false, uh, and you know, and I think that's that's where it's based on. What do we have to say about the fact that uh, that Kanye uh, was uh, you know, tweeting about his great visit to Trump, and seemingly um, Fuentes. Uh, this this super right wing American first, uh, you know, uh, television host who is you know guilty of so many different anti Israel screeds, anti Jewish screeds, and Kanye as well. Um, I mean, 
what's happening? I mean, what, what's with this? He, he's inviting these people to his house. They're going to Mago Largo, and they're so excited about it. I mean, this is really listen. Listen, Trump is genetically, psychologically, emotionally incapable of distancing himself from people who have supported him. He can't do it. No matter how egregiously immoral some of these people are, he can't do it. Remember, I mean, listen, he, he I, I said this is what I do remember saying before, but I'll repeat it. When, when Trump was asked about Kanye, his first response is, well, Kanye was good to me. What does that mean? What do those words mean? Therefore, it's okay to be an anti-Semite. Therefore, out of friendship, I won't denounce the, the I mean, to say those words out loud, I mean, is, 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 demonstrates a complete misunderstanding of how normal people function. Normal people do not say out loud, I excuse racism because I go bowling with the guy. You know, that's not how people function. That's not moral. And it's not so, acceptable. It's yeah, simply so, bizarre. Yes. And, and, and it's strange how you, you, you alluded to it before, but it's strange how there isn't a courageous uh, voice that can run. I want to hear your opinion about these two uh, that could challenge Trump, I think. Uh, and, and in a very strong fashion and have a pretty good track record intellectually and morally are, we talked about the Santas in Florida, but also Nikki Haley. Is right. Nikki Haley, is, is she, uh, people in the commentary podcast, uh, they criticized her for not uh, being strong enough in her reaction to Trump's statement that, you know, we need to go back to the past. But do you see Nikki Haley as as a possible, I mean, uh, as a possible great voice for the Republican Party or uh, DeSantis? Uh, Here's what the midterm elections made clear, is that the country will vote for Republicans. The country is not happy with Biden. His approval ratings are down, inflation is up, and there's no question that immigration and crime. So how did the Democrats do so well in the midterms? They did well because while independent voters, and that's the key here, are willing to vote for Republicans, they are not willing to vote for Trump-connected uh, uh, Republicans. And, and the Trump candidates lost, whether it was in Pennsylvania or, 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 or in, um, in Maine, wherever you look, the Trump-connected candidates did not win. The guys that went all in on election denial and all that stuff, those guys lost. And that the desire on the part of independent voters for a normal right kind of candidate, a normal Republican, right? The appetite is there, but they will not vote for the, what they see as the Trump fringe. Uh, and, uh, and, and so what, ha- what has to happen on the Republican side is a winnowing of the list. You don't want to see 16 or 10 or, or even seven candidates right. out there. You want to see at most, I would hope, Two people running against Trump in the Republican okay. primary. Are, are the two that I chose? You think two of the best? Oh, the best, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's hard to say. Listen, Nikki Haley was a governor. That that's, it comes with a good record of, you know, managing something. I like governors. DeSantis has a decent record in Florida. He's Trump without the, the you know, without some of the Michigas, and um, uh, you, you know, he's uh, 
he seems to know how to, he, he, what he did in Florida, winning Miami-Dade County. I mean, incredible what he did in Florida with the Hispanic vote, the black vote. I mean, he's, he's, he's a guy that did not just win. He won by a landslide and he had coattails. Uh, the Republicans across the state did better because of him. And uh, he's a guy that uh, certainly can appeal to the same kinds of voters that Trump appeals to while broadening that, uh, the, you know, that base. Right. And I, I, and I would say for Nikki, uh, she had, she was to me, you know, the closest thing to Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Yes, absolutely. She worked in the UN. Yeah, yeah. She 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 gave them a tongue lashing. She stood up for Eretz Israel, for for Medina yeah. Israel. I, I think that the fact that she's a woman, um, you know, if Kamala Harris is the candidate, because Biden <laughs> by that time has been, uh, I don't know if Biden's going to. Biden, it seems emboldened to run again due to his lack of disaster in the midterms, and so I don't know. Biden may run again. I don't know. The Democrats in many ways are in worse shape than the Republicans because, you know, Biden's popularity is down. He's going to be 86 at the end of his second term. I mean, he just had his birthday. It's all 11% of his fancy. And, um, but the point is, you know, he's not a popular figure. Kamala is even less popular than him. And if those two, if those two don't run, who runs on the Democratic side? I know it's really early. No one knew the name Barack Obama, Bill Clinton at this point in election cycles. But still, who do the who do the Democrats have? I mean, the the, the governor of Michigan. Who do they have? I, I, I speak with you uh, weekly for you to uh, uh, to give out possibilities. I would say once again, because she's a woman, Nikki, uh, because she comes from an immigrant family, uh, she represents the twenty first century. She represents an America. Not like Trump, who you know goes back to these roots of you know America first, and we hate immigrants. Um, you know, Nikki Haley. I think uh, if they could get behind her, uh, and she could get. And here's the problem. Here's she could, the problem. Better, she could let, get let me put this as writers. a theory. Here's the here's the theory, I and mean, it may be correct, is that nobody can beat Trump in the Republican primaries. Right, due to who comes out to vote and the you know energizes the people who are more passionate, the Democrats, the Trump voters, that no one can beat Trump in the Republican primaries, and the only Republican who can lose to Biden is Trump. Yes. You, okay, yes. so that might be the terrible conundrum the Republicans find themselves in that no one can beat uh, that no one can beat Trump in the primaries, and Trump's the only Republican guaranteed to lose. And the neoconservative world. Where are they to whisper into the ears of the Republican Party and come up with a way that within the next year or so, a candidate like a Haley or a DeSantis can really get into the problem is the party leadership doesn't have influence the way it used to. No deals are made in back cigar smoke filled rooms anymore. It's up to the primary voters and the tragedy of Trump's presidency is that from day one, he did nothing to expand his base. Because remember, when George W. Bush and, and ran for the second time, uh, Karl Rove's great innovation in election campaigning, which Barack Obama replicated, was don't worry about expanding your base. Drill down in your own natural supporters. Energize, activate them. 
increased turnout amongst your natural constituency, and that will win you elections. It worked for George W. and it worked for Barack Obama. The midterms, however, are a cautionary tale because in the midterms what happened was uh, you had the independent voters really determining the, the course of, 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 of this past election where it wasn't about simply energizing your own people. In fact, you do have to reach out a little bit. And, and the tragedy of Trump is that from day one of his presidency, he did nothing to expand his base. In other words, has he, had he wanted to expand his base, what would he have done? For instance, there was an immigration deal on the table that he himself had support, right? That basically said two things. There will be a pathway for citizenship for the illegal immigrants already in the country, but we will you know, invest enormous energy in stopping the, the flow. That's the deal. That's the deal everyone knows is right. That could pass were not for these screaming fanatics uh, you know, uh, on the right. And Trump gave in to his most passionate supporters rather than t- picking a policy that would have expanded his base, right? And this happened, in other words, he, would, he, would, he was much more comfortable engaging in rhetoric and throwing red meat to his supporters than he was in saying, listen, I won by, you know, a handful of votes ultimately in a few states, uh, right? And uh, if, all, you know, if I expand my, you know, if I expand my popularity, my natural supporters won't abandon me. I'll expand the base. I'll enact policies that will, in fact, make things better for everybody. But he didn't do anything to expand his base. He was so excited about satisfying his the people who loved him that he didn't try to make get more people to love him. It's sad, Ralph. I think we can end with this. And I say, Ralph, for a good reason now. Uh, there was a time when, you know, when we were growing up, when a gaffe, and I, not even a scandal, a gaffe, uh, I, I, let's remember, was it Ed Muskie who cried about the attacks on his wife um, right. or or Thomas or, or McGovern picking Thomas Eagleton? Eagleton, right, who right. ended up having electroshock therapy. Or, you know, there, there, was, there, there was a time when a gap like that could be similar to the great Purim play that we did uh, where where <laughs> Jesus was supposed to come back Right. And, and and when he when he was going to deliver the follow up to the Sermon of the Mount, he lost himself, and because of that, Christianity was abandoned. That was our poor play that we wrote. Right. <laughs> Trump and, and I was Jesus, by the way. And you were the Pope, as you remember. Right. My, my my point is is that those gaps don't mean anything. Trump it used Listen, to be- everyone thought after the Access Hollywood tape is that his candidacy was doomed, and it did nothing. Right, right, right. It's 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 worse than the Teflon presidency. It's yeah. like who cares? The Teflon presidency, right? It's it's like who cares? Yes. I mean, um, Gary Hart had a there was one picture with Gary Hart with a woman on a boat, dead in the water. Right. So so I don't know what sort of could replace the old gaps, but if that could happen, and I, I, let's be misfouled that something torpedoes Trump to the point that the balloon is burst. I think that's probably what you need. And maybe you know, Conway, go over there. Nick Fuentes, go so If over anything there. will stop him, it'll be, it'll be an indictment for, mis- for, 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 for the documents he kept. The documents. Maybe that'll, maybe or, that'll... or for January 6th. That's the only thing. Yeah. So let, let, let's, in many ways, since I think both of us, although you're in Canada, I think both of us would want a, a, you know, a, a move away from a lot of the leftist woke ideology that fueled this 
administration right. and will probably fuel the next one. And if and I think that would be better for Eretz Yisrael and for for the morality of this country. Right. Let's hope something with that happens. Okay, my friends, a wonderful Thanksgiving to all our American listeners uh, who might be hearing this post-Thanksgiving uh, from my Canadian rabbi, uh, Sultan of Swat, the, 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 the king of the world, uh, as Bruce Springsteen used to say about Clarence Clemens, the big man himself, the guy who's got that saxophone going. Rabbi Pupko, take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.